what does a Baha'i Mass or service look like from the beginning to the end? Yeah, so this is an interesting question. So in the Baha'i faith, there aren't clergy that lead any particular form of religious you know, traditional practice. Um, instead, Baha'is are called upon to all be teachers and, and protagonists of, and, of uh, enacting the teachings of Baha'u'llah and learning how to put them into practice in our, in our communities and in society. So there isn't necessarily a, a mass in the terms of like, say, a group that's of, of religious followers that are coming together to follow a particular, you know, set of traditions in, in, in their worship. Um, I think that might be the root of your question. So instead, there's a across the Baha'i world, there's a series of what we call core activities that are are meant to be central to our lives as Baha'is that we try and implement in in our in our in our lives, in our homes, in our communities, uh, alongside others um, who may not even be members of the Baha'i faith, but that these teachings are meant for all. So these core activities are, are, some of them are kind of spiritual and educational, service-oriented in nature, and others are more about kind of devotional character of a community. So there are spaces for the education of children. There are children's classes. Um, there are spaces for uh, the empowerment of the middle school-aged group. They're called junior youth groups. There are spaces for youth and adults to study together the writings of the Baha'i faith and think about their implications and application to our lives and our community in these study circles. And then there are devotional gatherings, so spaces of worship that are meant to be um, bringing together, you know, those from any background to, to come and to pray and, 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 to, and to share praise. And that might be more what you're thinking about in terms of a mass, but I'm not sure because I know mass also has an element of, of education as part of it. So perhaps some of those other spaces for children and youth and adults that I was mentioning kind of refer, kind of are like that. <laughs> They're like an individual act. It's like the church of the human heart. You're not going to a particular building to have someone, you know, lead you in those things, but it's something that you're working on as well alongside others in your community that anybody can become, you know, trained and empowered to, to, to offer. But in terms of maybe our devotional gathering space, maybe that's something that's kind of related to the element of worship that often happens in, in a mass. Um, so I could share a little bit about kind of that. I mean, essentially, it's very diverse. So devotional meetings, they really, they spring up naturally in a community where there's this conversation occurring about the spiritual dimension of human existence, um, where that's growing. So in diverse settings all around the world, <laughs> Baha'is and their families and their friends, they unite with one another in prayer. Um, there aren't any particular rituals. Um, there's no one individual that has a special role. The meetings consist largely of, you know, say, reading prayers and passages from the Baha'i sacred texts, and um, and they can be, you know, in, in, informal, and, and they can be, uh, but yet a respectful environment. Like, the atmosphere is, is very reverent and prayerful, and that spirit of communal worship that's generated by these simple gatherings for prayer um, begins to permeate the community's uh, actions. So it's meant to not just be like isolated worship, but worship that's connected to our the spirit of our service as well, of, of our efforts to put these teachings into practice to benefit our communities and our families. So it's, yeah, so it's a very common practice for Baha'is in localities around the world to gather together either in, in centers or in their homes or the homes of their friends with their neighbors to offer prayers together. Um, and so it provides that opportunity for people to, you know, read aloud and listen to extracts from the Holy Scriptures with one another and other passages. And um, and they often include lots of song, lots of uplifting song and music, because, of course, 
what heart touched by the writings of God wouldn't want to sing, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, some of us aren't great singers, but, but at the same time, you know, <laughs> there's this efflorescence of art that usually comes in the human expression of these spiritual qualities, these spiritual susceptibilities are awakened in these spaces and, and it often draws out the best in us. And, 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 and that in turn provides us that spiritual energy and impetus and, and the unity between us in, in, in those spaces of prayer that helps promote these patterns of, of community life that are infused with this spirit of devotion that we we turn towards God when we are, are you know seeking to advance our communities and seek progress and also we turn towards God just out of pure love for him and praise and gratitude and all the different reasons we pray in times of crisis and um, that these are all all reasons that we may come together in, in prayer and I think uh, you know you yeah so I think this was what this in many ways might kind of transition into is you know we're talking about this at uh, well you, you spoke about how it's it's kind of a worldwide um, phenomenon uh, certain most certainly um, so that 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 kind of uh, segues us into this question which would be um, what is the you know governing body of the Baha'is so all the way at the, at, the, at the top so to speak and uh, who were the leaders from Baha'u'llah until today I think we already touched on. Uh, Abdul Baha, and then also uh, I'd like to also throw in as well. Um, how is the hierarchy, so to speak, of the Baha'i faith structured? Yeah. So, as I was kind of just briefly messaging, me mentioning, um, there's no official clergy in the Baha'i faith, so we don't have people in the Baha'i faith whose position is maybe comparable to like a professional clergyman or, or priest or a paid teacher of some sort. In other words, but um, but in this cause, uh, every believer is called upon to teach. So there's there's kind of a, a way of looking at the the growth of the cause and the spread of the teachings uh, in the sense of having three protagonists. Um, so the kind of you know categories of protagonists, these these three participants in this work of bringing about this new world order for humanity, um, and that each have this unique important roles and a relationship together. So the first of this participant is of course the individual believer. So it's the duty of the individual to learn about the teachings to recognize the manifestation of god to be firm in their covenant and, and following their you know striving to follow their laws to strive daily to bring their life you know in, in line with those teachings and to serve humanity and and be conscious of the fact that our life doesn't end like on this plane with this physical existence but that we are progressing towards god eternally so we want to develop these spiritual qualities kindness justice patience uh forgiveness all of these qualities that the that the world's faiths you know, lay before us that we are, we're working on developing those um, and that we don't achieve that purpose just by thinking about it. You can't just think, oh, I want to be more patient, but that you have to put them into practice and you have to be tested and you have to have to serve your fellow human beings. You know, um, there's a quote in the writings that says service to humanity is service to God. So if we want to serve him, we have to serve each other and we have to work together. So sharing the knowledge that we gain through all of that. So there's that that element of the protagonist. Then the second participant would really be the community. So human beings, we're not created to exist alone. You know, we live in communities. We have to work together if we want to build a new, you know, form of, of life, of civilization for humanity. So the community that's closest to us would be our, our local one, of course, and that can consist of, of others, you know, other Baha'is and our neighbors that are living in our particular town or village. And, um, and that local community is where we learn to cooperate, you know, with one another, to grow together, to become united, to examine certain forces of society that might be influencing the dynamics of our community and its culture and to, you know, to root out sources of, of, uh, of disunity and, and, and to work together. Um, so we're all members then of these local communities. And so there's the local Baha'i community and then of national communities, the nation that we're, that we live in and then the worldwide 
um, community as well. Uh, so there's constantly expanding and, and attracting, you know, people interacting from different religious backgrounds and races and nationalities. But that's that's another kind of concept that the that Baha'is will think about um, is that how as a community are are we operating? And then um, the third protagonist are the institutions of the faith. So the uh, this you know this represents this um, or sorry not this represents but like the. Um, uh, the, I think I mentioned before this concept of a covenant. So there's kind of this greater covenant that God made with mankind that he'll never leave us without guidance. He'll always send these manifestations and it's our duty to recognize them and learn to follow their teachings. And then similarly, there's this covenant that Baha'u'llah made with mankind sharing like who it is that we should turn to after his passing. And, and uh, that really developed this system of administration. So included then in these commandments of Baha'u'llah are many that are related to the ways that society should be organized. So in the past, there, the manifestations of God hadn't said much to their followers about how to organize themselves and, and, how, and people had to discover that how to do this on their own. Um, and so in the case of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah brought his own administrative order and, and wrote about it at length, which means that he told us like what institutions that we need to create, how they should function, how humanity should be governed, um, and that these are some of those institutions then that got uh, created by the by the by community through these teachings. Uh, so we have um, the Universal House of Justice is the supreme governing body of the Baha'i faith, um, and their seat is is also located in the Baha'i Holy Land in Haifa. Um, so and then so in each country where Baha'is exist, the Baha'i community elects once a year a national spiritual consent assembly composed of nine members. Um, and in each locality within a community where there are sufficient numbers of Baha'is, they also elect a local spiritual assembly. So there's a local spiritual assembly of Tacoma, for example, but there's also a national spiritual assembly of the Baha'is of the United States. And the, the, that body is what helps with the election of the Universal House of Justice alongside the other national assemblies across the world. Um, so these bodies then are, are um, the, the, they're not priests, they're not clergy, they're individuals who are uh, elected and chosen by the community to guide the affairs of the community and watch over its well-being and, and the well-being of individual believers. So they, like I mentioned, they consist of nine members each that they're, and the way that they're elected is unique as well. There's not like campaigning and things like that. Instead, it's just this very prayerful atmosphere by secret ballot. All the adult believers in the community are um, uh, allowed to, vo to vote and elect um, other Baha'is that live in their locality to serve on these institutions. So they're, they're yeah, so it's interesting. These assemblies are really important then to Baha'is and they're, and we're learning how to bring Baha'u'llah's vision of what these institutions need to be <laughs> into reality. Um, but they're, you know, through them, we're learning, you know, how human affairs can be administrated, how, how this new order could be established in society, um, this world order of Baha'u'llah. But yeah, so the Universal House of Justice then, in terms of your question about um, kind of like the hierarchy of the faith. That's the, that's the center of the covenant for today. So after Baha'u'llah passed, he wrote, you know, he wrote in his, um, uh, in his will and testament that the, that the Baha'is should turn to his son, Abdu'l-Baha, as the interpreter of his words and the center of his covenant. And as I mentioned before, Abdu'l-Baha had been raised by Baha'u'llah himself. He'd recognized his station early as a child. He endured all the same sufferings as his father. And he was this precious gift that was just such a perfect exemplar of the Baha'i teachings. So he lived 77 years 
Um, he was actually born the night the Bob declared <laughs> his, his mission in 1844, and he passed away in November of 1921. Um, but so his it, throughout his life, then he was enacting the, the after the passing of his father, he had this responsibility for the Baha'i community um, and, you know, labor to help with, you know, establishing the faith far and wide in the East and the West. And I mentioned, too, that he wrote all these tablets to individuals and groups and clarified the teachings of his father and his interpretations are now like a really essential part of the writings of the Baha'i faith. Um, so being able to turn to him helped the Baha'is not to splinter and separate into groups after the passing of Baha'u'llah. Um, and the, you know, this, through this love of Baha'u'llah, we have this, this desire to turn to Abdu'l-Baha as this example and to, um, to follow his teachings. And so in the will and testament of Abdu'l-Baha, when he passed, he named his grandson, Shoghi Effendi, as the guardian of the faith. So after his passing, Shoghi Effendi became the authorized interpreter of the teachings. And so for around 36 years or so, he continued that work of his grandfather, Abdu'l-Baha, in clarifying the words of the manifestation and establishing his faith like in all parts of the planet. <laughs> That's, by that point in time, the faith was really, really spreading to lots of remote locations. Um, and about five and a half years after he had passed away, the um, Baha'i community had been globally established enough that we were able to have a world election of the Universal House of Justice, um, which Baha'u'llah had envisioned and clearly described and Abdu'l-Baha and the Guardian had clarified as well. So now the Universal House of Justice is the supreme institution of the faith that all the Baha'is of the world turn to. And I think, you know, uh, this certainly leads us into question number uh, into question number 22, which, you know, you, yeah, you could ask. So it certainly leads us into, um, uh, actually, yeah, no, you can ask question uh, 22. Okay, so this one is, uh, what does the Baha'i calendar look like, and what are some of the holy, uh, the, the high holy days? Yeah. So this is, a, this is a fun part of every religion, isn't it? <laughs> the observance of holy days, it's such a central thing, in, in, you know, in each faith, um, you know, that through commemorating special times, and it brings, it brings us together in, in, in love and celebration and remembrance and gratitude and all these different things. Um, it, that we can express collectively and individually. So anyhow, so I, I think I mentioned before that, you know, it's, it's every religious dispensation really uh, recreated elements of our conception of time and how we organize ourselves and, and, and calendar. Um, and that similarly, like the days that we remember in particular that like, you know, significant holy days um, are also, you know, they shift over time. Um, although I have, I have friends that like to joke that since Baha'is believe that like all of the, all of the world's religions are the religion of God, you know, that we could literally just be celebrating all the time because we can celebrate all the world's, all, <laughs> all the world's holy days and be good. So, but I like to point out that no, usually each religious dispensation kind of focuses on the most recent of those, you know, like, yes, of course, like Christians believe in all the Jewish holy days, but they celebrate ones particularly related to Christ and, and his life and his dispensation, you know, but I mean, not to say that you couldn't also celebrate the Jewish ones. You could, because Christ did, but, <laughs> but at the same time, like there's so much that's worth celebrating that we tend to focus on something that's like the most recent set of it. <laughs> so anyhow, uh, that's just kind of an aside. But yeah, so the coming of each manifestation brings about this kind of renewal, this revitalization that the old things pass away and all things become new and, um, and that they can, you know, we mentioned before too, they can abrogate laws formally that, you know, had been the manners and customs of previous dispensations and they can reform them and change them. And it's just this example of the creative power of divine revelation, you know, that it, it instills this fresh life, um, you know, into our hearts and our souls. So, um, okay, so the Baha'i calendar, to get more specific, it's known as the Badi calendar, and it was actually introduced by the Bob. 
Um, and then subsequently, Baha'u'llah confirmed that this was the calendar that uh, the Baha'i followers were, were to, to turn to. Um, so its beginning is fixed with the commencement of the year that Baha'u'llah declared, that the Bab declared in 1844. So that's the beginning of the Baha'i era, um, inaugurated by its twin founders. So the Baha'i holy days then include events that are pertaining to like the birth of either of the manifestations, their declaration, the passing of the Bab and Baha'u'llah, um, the uh let's see in the book of laws that baha'u'llah revealed the katabi akdas um he designates that there are two most great festivals the uh, resvan which is commemorating that those 12 days when he was in the garden um and you know revealing his revelation and then um also the uh the twin holy days of when the bab and and, and baha'u'llah were born um, and so anyhow, so we have then uh, in the body in the body calendar, it's composed of 19 months with 19 days each. And then if you're doing math right now in your head, there's four or five, depending on if it's a leap year, separate days <laughs> that are called intercalary days, in, which intercalary meaning like between calendar. So these are, are days that were celebrated as kind of days of service and hospitality. And so um, they're, they're day, the days of a Yamiha is what it's called. Uh, and it's a preparation before the fast, which is the last month of the Baha'i year. It's a it's a month of fasting for, for the Baha'is. Um, so there are nine holy days out of this calendar year um, that Baha'is are to observe uh, in a way where you, you like suspend work like you wouldn't be um, going to school or, or doing work things. Uh, that So those nine days are Nauru's. So that's the new year, uh, which is celebrated at the spring equinox. So in March, 20, generally around the 21st of March. Um, three of the days of the of the 12 days of Rizvan that are, can correspond to like when Baha'u'llah declared his mission publicly, when his family was able to join him at the garden and the last days that they were there at the garden. So the first day of Rizvan and the ninth day and the 12th day are days that we suspend work as well. And then the declaration of the Bob, which is, oh, sorry, Rizvan. <laughs> it's like, you probably don't know when that is. It's in April. <laughs> so the first day of Rizvan is, uh, is around April 21st and the ninth day is the 29th and the 12th day is usually May 2nd in our calendar. Um, the declaration of the Bob, which is the day that he uh, first declared his mission. Um, and that's May 23rd. And, uh, the ascension of Baha'u'llah when he passed away. So that's May, the end of May as well, May 28th uh, this last year. Martyrdom of the Bab when he was killed. Um, that's in July, July 9th. And then there's the twin holy days of when they were both born. So interestingly enough, we of course are on a solar calendar where everything kind of stays pretty consistent though you have the weird leap year stuff going on right in, in the West. Um, but of course where the Bab and Baha'u'llah and all their followers were living was on a lunar calendar because it was predominantly an Islamic community. Um, and so on the lunar calendar, the day the Bab was born and the day that Baha'u'llah was born occur one day after each other. Um, but if you follow the solar calendar, they did not. <laughs> so for a while, like Baha'is were a little confused about depending on which country you lived in and what their calendar was, when you celebrated the twin holy days was different. <laughs> but more recently, uh, the Universal House of Justice declared like, okay, it's time. We all need to celebrate this at the same time. And, and we can actually, you know, following like the practice and the way that the writings talk about the births of these twin manifestations, we'll follow them as twin holy days. So the Bob was born November 6th and the, the Baha'u'llah would have been born November 7th, if you follow that. So the twin holy days then are, are set to be in November. And just recently, the Baha'i community celebrated the um, 
the bicentenary of their births. So the 200th year uh, since Baha'u'llah was born and the 200th year since the Bab was born. So there were these beautiful celebrations all over the world, all over the place um, in commemoration of those. Um, so yeah, and then there's also, like I mentioned, there's a few other holy days that we don't suspend work on, but they're just special commemorations that we that we host or celebrations. So one is the day of the covenant, which is uh, representing like the 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 day that Abdul Baha was born. Um, and that's the 25th of November. And this year was the 100th anniversary of his passing too, the ascension of Abdul Baha, which is the 27th of November. So that was a very special community, uh, community celebration that happened all over this year. And then a Yamiha, like I mentioned, those four or five days that take place at the end of February and the start of March um, to you know, have charity and gift giving and service uh, prior to this annual month of fasting, which happens in March, so 19 days. Um, so usually it's the second to the 20th, um, in which Baha'is that are 15 and above would abstain from food and drink between sunrise and sunset. Um, there are exemptions um, for those who are like ill or elderly or traveling or pregnant in my case, or breastfeeding <laughs> that they are, uh, uh, but anyhow, but that's the, the month of fasting. And those are generally the special days in the Baha'i calendar. Awesome. Uh, Rylan, uh, Balin, and Noah, do you have any other questions you want to ask about the Baha'i faith? Yeah, how about heaven and hell? Can we talk about that? No. No, just kidding. Yes. <laughs> uh, let me see. I, I pulled out a quote about this, too. Let me scroll up to it because I wanted to make sure because this was one that you guys had asked for before I was like oh yeah these are these are lovely questions um my father comes from a background in, in Catholicism and this was one of his like big questions when he was investigating the Baha'i faith was he wanted to know its perspective uh I should just search my document um he wanted to know a perspective the Baha'i perspective on this so um let me see let me pull up some quotes that were talking about it and I think this also comes you know, kind of like the, again, this is one of those elements of the spiritual teachings of a faith that's hard for us to comprehend because we're physical beings, <laughs> but we're trying to understand a spiritual concept about like the nature of our soul and what happens to it after death. And that's, that's very hard to comprehend, um, you know, to kind of use, uh, there's, a, there's an, a lovely analogy that Abdu'l-Baha used comparing our life in this world, kind of like the life of a child developing in the womb where like it's in the womb and that's all it knows. And if you tried to explain to it, like why it needs eyes, why it needs lungs, you know, like all these things, it would not be able to understand yet. As soon as it's born into this world, those things become essential <laughs> to part of your existence. And it's very difficult or nay impossible for some, some of these, you know, organs to survive, <laughs> you know, to live without them. But they, and they're, you know, the elements of, of our, of our growth then in the world of the womb is something that helps us prepare not for that life. It has everything it needs when it's growing in there, but for the life right after, right. They become essential for that. So similarly, we're kind of told that our spiritual qualities that we're told to develop in this life and work on our, our patience, our forgiveness, our kindliness, all of these things are kind of like our spiritual limbs and our spiritual eyes and ears that we'll need for the next world. And, and that, you know, the, the, the teachings of God help us to develop those qualities so that in the next world, we are, you know, we can, we grow even closer to God. Um, and that that really is, is the part of the purpose of our existence and the nature of our soul is that we long to be near our creator, that we long to, to grow closer to him. And so through, through our lives in this world, we prepare ourselves for the next. Um, and in that sense, heaven and hell are kind of conceptual ways of thinking about our preparation for the next world of how 
well, we prepared ourselves spiritually for this state of being near to God, which is like our heaven, or far from him, which is like our hell. <laughs> and that these aren't physical states of being, but they're physical examples that we use to try and understand a spiritual state of nearness or farness from God. As Shoghi Effendi put it, heaven and hell are conditions within our own being. So they're like ways that we are trying to understand the spiritual state of growing close to God or being far from him um, within like the limits of our understanding. And also maybe also the limits of like our understanding in different phases in human history, right? Because the teachings on heaven and hell also kind of grow in their complexity from each religious dispensation to the next, you know, how we conceive what we think of as good and how we would then ascribe that to, okay, being close to God is good. What else is good? A mansion is good. So in the next life, if you do the right things here, you'll be in a mansion, you know, or like, oh, you know, what are, what are the things that we have value for us here that we try and use as symbols of, of being close to God in the next world to help us understand like how incredible that spiritual state is, you know, that we'll be surrounded by the angels. We're like, yes, that sounds wonderful. I don't know what that means, but I want that. So how do I do that? <laughs> and that these teachings kind of on heaven and hell help us to understand that. And that also, I think there's an element of the love of God that draws us close to him and wanting to fulfill these teachings and also the fear of God, right? That's part of what the hell element of it is, is the fear that somehow some choices that we've made in this world will prevent us from being as close to God as we could have been, or as close to God as we want to be, like our own faults and frailties and choices. And so like, there's that dynamic of like learning about the love and the fear of God that helps us to, you know, to toe the line, to, you know, to, to put in that little extra effort to say, no, I want, I want to grow closer to him. I want to make it to heaven. I want to be close to and that I'll, you know, I'll, I'll change the way that I live my life and I'll teach my children the same thing, you know, that there's this element of, of how we, um, how we understand that our life in the next world that inspires us um, to, to be better in our life in this world. Certainly. And at the end of each episode, uh, at the end of each interview episode, uh, more specifically, we ask, you know, uh, what does it mean to be a member of this religion? Uh, so for you, what does it mean to be a Baha'i? And a beautiful question at that. <laughs> Someone once asked Abdul Baha this very same question. So I'm going to share his response because it's the first thing that comes to my mind when I think about it. So someone on, a, on an occasion asked Abdul Baha, what is a Baha'i? And he replied, to be a Baha'i simply means to love all the world, to love humanity, and to try to serve it, to work for universal peace and universal brotherhood. And uh, similarly, uh, Baha'u'llah talks about that man must show forth fruits, you know, that, that, uh, that we, you know, goodly fruits, that our life must be full of, of actions that benefit ourselves and others. And that, you know, to be a Baha'i means that we've recognized Baha'u'llah as this, one of these manifestations of God and, and that we want to work in our lives to put his teachings into, into practice for ourselves and to share the pearls of his, of his wisdom and of his writings with, with those around us too. That it's not the work done by one for the many, but it's the work done by anyone <laughs> for, the, for the benefit of all. Wow, thank you so much uh, for your response. This uh, concludes our episode. This has been episode uh, number 17, The Baha'i Faith. Stay tuned for planned future episodes. That being said, I am Xavier. I'm Rylan. I'm Balin. I'm Noah. I'm Stephanie. And stay tuned. <laughs>